0: Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, February 24th. I'm Joyce Napier. Tonight, 365 days of war. Slava Ukraini. One year ago, Russia invaded. One year later, Ukraine's army continues to hold the nation as allies send billions in military aid.
1: Your fundamental contribution to Ukrainian stability and our Ability to win. Five priorities. First, weapon. Second, sanctions. Third, finance. Fourth, justice. Fifth, unity.
0: Tonight, we bring you from Ottawa to Kyiv, examining Ukraine's war effort, the global sanctions squeeze on Russia, and Vladimir Putin's position. One year ago, Zelensky was offered safe passage out of Kyiv, but the Ukrainian president insisted he'd stay to take up arms at home. Today, he stood tall in the capital, honoring his military's resilience and commemorating the fallen. This is where we begin tonight with CTV's Adrian Gobriel. And joining me now from Kyiv is CTV News' Adrian Gobriel. Hi, Adrian. Good to have you on the show. So, 365 days of war, you know, on this anniversary, you know, being marked all over the world, or almost. Is there anything different today in the city, or is it just another day in the war?
2: Well, in, in, in many respects, it is another day in the war, though today, Kiev felt different. It was quieter. There was a noticeable police presence and military presence, presence here uh, in St. Michael's Square behind me, and throughout the city. Uh, This evening we went uh, to to meet the National Philharmonic who were doing a performance. We'll have that later on CTV National News. And, you know, there was a much smaller uh, crowd there and I was speaking with the Philharmonic's director and they said many people have left Kyiv today. They've left for the weekend, unsure of what was coming. Many schools were closed earlier this week out of concerns for the safety of children. Uh, There was no air raid sirens, interestingly, today in Kyiv that we heard. We were in and out. We were in Bucha. We were in uh, Irpene. But um, still, many people on edge. It's been a couple months since there has been a major strike here in the capital, though many still waiting for what could come tonight, tomorrow. It's anyone's guess.
0: So what were, Adrian, people expecting? Because I heard you say earlier this week that they had closed schools uh, they wanted to protect kids. But how do you protect those kids if you're expecting more air raids? By closing the schools, certainly, because they may be targeted. But how do they protect their own children?
2: Yeah, protecting the children has been a major challenge here. You know, More than 3,000 schools have taken shelling over the last 12 months. Uh, you know, what when, when it comes to what people were expecting, you know, people have been concerned, uh, you know, the Kremlin has, has likes to make, uh, you know, a lot of noise around different anniversaries historically in their nation and elsewhere. Uh, when it comes to kids, you know, when schools are allowed to, were allowed to reopen here, uh, they all had to have a bomb shelter. Uh, we've uh, been speaking with teachers, we've been speaking with people who have been helping rebuild schools. So imagine being a student in a school and every time an air raid siren goes off, you must go down into the bomb shelter. Every time the power goes off, you lose the heat in your school. You're you're unable to use your computer. Um, You know, children, families I've been speaking with say that their children here have had to grow up far too quick over the last year. And teachers as well, uh, the trauma that they're enduring, being so much more than just educators, being a support network, being, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, taking, making sure that the children are safe in so many different respects. Uh, It has been a, a challenge on so many different fronts, Joyce.
0: I imagine. But today is, is, you know, a day where the, we're, we're all marking this one-year anniversary, uh, the U.S. pledging $2 billion more, the G7 announcing more sanctions. Still clearly huge support uh, for Ukraine. Like, Is it obvious where you are? People aware of the incredible support that still exists?
2: There definitely is a, a lot of knowledge around the support. People are, are, are very thankful. Uh, you know, histo- um, I would say, culturally, Ukrainians don't show a ton of emotion, though when you when you speak, uh, you know, when I share that I'm from Canada, uh, their eyes light up. We know that this week a, a, a banknote was released to, to commemorate uh, the last 12 months. On one side of the banknote is Ukrainian soldiers with the Ukrainian flag. Also, there's the Canadian flag. The American flag on the other side of that banknote are two hands tied together uh, in, in, a, in a show of what, what Ukraine and what the United States has called crimes against humanity.
0: So give us a picture of, of a regular day now in Kyiv. You've been there for a couple of days. You've done great uh, great reports. What's a regular day? What did today look like?
2: Everyone wakes up, <laughs> looks out their window take stock of the day. Uh, you know, I, I think in many respects it's a beautiful European city and um, it's easy to to forget what's actually happening just to the east where the war on the front lines is raging uh, at, a, at, a, at a remarkable and a violent level. Um, People are are, are getting going about their day, but in the back of their minds, they're still wondering what could come tonight at the, uh, you know, at the Philharmonic's performance, uh, speaking with members of the Philharmonic, a violinist who say that, you know, they're scared to show up and perform, though they're doing so because they must, because they want to show uh, their their solidarity with their their countrymen and women. (laughs) and they want to do their part to try and usher in normal life. Um, so, you know, there's, there, in one sense, there's a lot of what appears to be normal happening in the city. People get up, they go to school, they go to work, uh, but there's so many disruptions, there's so many concerns, air raid sirens break in, and all of a sudden you're jolted out of your comfort and you're reminded of what could be coming from above.
0: And the world is covering this quickly. I mean, I, 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 and, and you have, uh, both of us have little time left. There must be journalists from all over the world there.
2: Uh, journalists, definitely. I've been, I've been meeting wow. journalists from, from e- almost every corner of the world. Uh, today at our hotel is where Zelensky yeah. held a press conference, and the, the amount of media lined yeah. up to go in for that press conference was remarkable. Hundreds and hundreds from every corner of the world, and uh, it was it was quite it's quite something to see. Um, but you know, this is uh, to show you know uh, not just from the West, but from elsewhere in the world, just how much attention is on Ukraine. People understand what is at stake here, and uh, it, it is something to to behold.
0: And uh, Vladimir Zelensky thanked the journalists who were covering it, actually, today in that news conference. CTV's Adrian Gobriel from Kyiv, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, and please stay safe.
2: Will do, Joyce. Thank you so much.
0: So what does this day mean to the people who call Ukraine home? Let's bring in Ina Sovson. She's an Ukrainian member of parliament with the Holos Party. Um, Hello, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. It's been 365 days. How did you mark this anniversary today? You're in Kiev. How did you mark it?
1: Well, uh, I'm sorry for correcting you, but everybody is talking about one year of war in Ukraine, but the reality is we are nine years into the war. Of course, the big invasion started exactly one year ago, but I think that that, that people tend to forget that we have been fighting this war for over eight years before the full-scale invasion started. But of course, uh, one year ago exactly, the lives of all of us have changed dramatically, despite being at war for eight years before that. Uh, because, uh, because we woke up to hearing explosions in our cities uh, all over the country, east, west, center. And that is something that changed us dramatically. That has, uh, has, has affected us emotionally on a very big extent. But I also think that that is something that has made us so much stronger Ukraine as as a nation became so much stronger. And we have proven to the world that we are actually extremely strong and committed and dedicated. And we can actually fight against the second biggest army in the world and win. And I think that is something that we have to take stock of today, Uh, but not to relax and say that, okay, we are winning and then just, uh, you know, um, just forget about uh, about everything. We're still in uh, the midst of a very heavy fighting on the East. And um, and we remember about that every single moment of, of today, particularly. Do you feel, Ina, that you are winning? I know that we have kicked Russians away from Kiev. Look, I'm now sitting in my home. Russians have been literally 20 minutes drive from my home, from where I live. I could see explosions around and Bucha from the windows of my house. That is how close they have been. They are not here anymore, and they're not trying to get here anymore because they know what they will face. We have kicked them out from Kherson. We have kicked them out from Kharkiv region. So, so it is doable. The question now is not about commitment of the Ukrainian army. I think that, that we have proven that they have they don't lack any any commitment they don't have any problems with their professionalism the question now is is to at least match the the, the number of weapons available to the Ukrainian army, to that that Russian army has. And I think that the argument that we have heard a year ago, half a year ago, Ukrainian soldiers don't know how to use this type of weapon, so it's not safe to give them this type of weapon. I don't think these arguments hold anymore, because indeed we have proven that our soldiers can use the weapons very efficiently. So I think the question now is, is how soon the weapons will get here and then Ukrainian army will actually kick Russians out of that, of our territory. Yes, we can do this. I don't have any doubt about that. The question is how soon we would be able to go on this counteroffensive. And that is very much dependent upon the supply of weapons to the army.
0: So you, you're talking about a counteroffensive and weapons that you need Which ones would you need for that counter-offensive that you feel are not coming fast enough?
1: Well, uh, the question of tanks, uh, we have been talking about that for months now. And luckily there is a breakthrough and Germany decided to provide tanks and other European countries, um, Canada pitched in a bit. So so, so it's happening. But we have to remember that we need a bigger number of tanks. So today, Germany announced that they're increasing the number of Leopard 2 tanks that they're providing from 14 to 18. Well, it's it's, it's significant in terms of portion of, of increase, but but it's it's still not enough. We still need more of those. Uh, so so the tanks issue is not resolved. It's it's in the process, but we need the bigger numbers, of course. We also need the fighter jets to be able to control our air. I've heard the reporter speaking from Kiev mentioning the air raid alerts here in the city. Uh, kids going to the bomb shelters uh, pretty often because of those air raid alerts. We need to be able to protect our civilians, our children, our energy infrastructure, but also to cover the air for our infantry uh, to go on, on offensive and, and liberate our territories. Then we need long range missiles That is something that we have been using quite efficiently, the shorter range missiles to destroy Russian warehouses. Uh, And we can do more of that if we can reach to uh, longer distances. So that is something that Ukrainian army is asking for. Uh, But then of course, ammunition. Uh, The world was not prepared for this intensity of war. We are shooting down thousands of of, of, uh, blocks of ammunition every single day, which is something that the world hasn't faced before. So, 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 just producing this ammunition uh, because no country at this point has enough stock of that, so so production is, is setting up production is is very important because Russians unfortunately have lots of those in stock, so producing ammunition is something that we need to remember about as well. Are you expecting a, a renewed Russian offensive? I think I I gave up trying to predict what is going to happen quite some time ago. Uh, I think it is possible. We cannot guarantee, we cannot know, nobody can get into the mind of Putin and to understand what is happening there. I'm not seeing them having the capacity for large um, intensive uh, uh, counteroffensive, but they will definitely try to because they don't really have a choice. They either are stuck and the territory is where they are, or they try to go on some sort of counteroffensive. Uh, and the question is is if we would have enough weapons to, to stop this counteroffensive. So I, I wish I could know the answer to your question. I don't. Uh, I just know that whatever they're planning for, we need to be well prepared for that.
0: So I'm wondering, you know, th- this war, the Russians were expecting that your city would fall within days, and it didn't. It's lasted a year, and it looks like it may last a little longer than that. How has it affected you, and how do you think your president, who became a wartime
1: president, has done? Well, it has affected all of us very a lot, and us as the country. You know, uh, I remember the, the night when, when uh, we heard explosions in Kyiv. Uh, I talked to my partner, and he's in the army now. He re-enlisted to the army on the first day of invasion, and he's been there on the front line from day one of this big war. And he told me one thing. He said, whatever happens, never stay away from people. Always be with other people. And that was a very personal advice that he gave to me before before getting to, to war and putting his uniform on. But I think that is something that we learned very deeply, that we survive if we are together, if we are together with other people, if we are staying united. And I think that is the lesson for for all of us uh, here inside Ukraine, but also for for the Western community overall. We are strong and we manage to survive if we keep together. That is something very, 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 on the one hand, very personal comment on my side, but I also think that has very strong political implications. We have to stay united. And that is the lesson that we have learned. And I think that that is the lesson that uh, President Zelensky also um, manifests because he's always talking about this unity inside the country and the unity of, of the Western um, allies around common ideas and common values and common goals and common interests. So I think that that we have done much better than Russia expected. Russia was always pushing for disintegration. Uh, and suddenly this unity that we as a nation shown and, and the West altogether shown is something that Russia didn't expect. So I think this is probably how we changed altogether over the course of the last year. And I think that unity is what is
0: the whole world, or many parts of the world, are admiring right now. Ukrainian Member of Parliament, Ina Sovson, thank you for taking the time uh, to join us. Thank you. On the other side of a quick break, sanctions and weapons. Allies send Ukraine billions in an attempt to squeeze Putin's war chest. And are their efforts working? Stay right here with Power Play. And here's a look at Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, tonight. As the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion comes to a close, Ukrainians were not the only ones to mark the sombre occasion today. There were vigils and ceremonies held around the world. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier Doug Ford are expected to attend a stand with Ukraine rally tonight in Toronto. The global approach to Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been two-pronged, military and financial. Since the start of the war, allies have sent billions of dollars' worth of weapons and military aid to Ukraine, including the much-sought-after Leopard 2 tanks. Just today, Canada announced another four battle tanks for Ukraine. Allies have also launched a coordinated sanctions campaign against Russian officials and oligarchs. Plus, there has been a price cap put on Russian oil as the EU expedites its move away from Russian energy. So, 365 days in, and with no end in sight, is this strategy working? Joining me now are CTV's military analyst, retired Major General David Fraser. He's the former commander of NATO forces in southern Afghanistan and Heritage Capital Management CEO Bill Browder. He's also the architect of Magnitsky-style sanctions. Those sanctions aim to punish human rights abusers. Browder is the former business partner of Sergei Magnitsky. Magnitsky testified against Kremlin officials and subsequently died while in custody. Browder is also the author of the best-selling books about these sanctions called Red Notice and Freezing Order. David Fraser, Bill Browder, welcome to Power Play. It's good to have you on the show. Um, Mr. Browder, I want to ask you today about the G7 leaders announcing more sanctions against Russian officials and financial institutions uh, and third countries that support Russia. Now, tell us how effective you think these new round of sanctions are
3: well so so we, we need to, to look at sanctions in the whole and and if we um, if we look at sanctions right now, Russia has been sanctioned more heavily than any other country has ever been sanctioned in the history of sanctions. So these are very serious sanctions. Um, you went through the, the sort of list of them. there's a lot longer list of of, of banks that can't do business there uh, imports that can't be done oligarchs who can't get access to their money. But there's one huge loophole in this whole situation, which is that Russia continues to sell oil and gas um, in, in the amounts of between half a billion and a billion dollars a day. And that money that accrues to Russia from the sale of oil and gas could keep this war going into perpetuity. And if the purpose of sanctions is to basically make it impossible financially for Putin to conduct this war. We need to figure out what to do with this oil and gas, and we haven't figured that out yet.
0: That's interesting. David Fraser, Canada sending four more Leopard 2 tanks. That's eight in all that Canada sent. We know Germany, U.S. sending tanks as well. Give us an idea of how that can change the dynamic on the ground uh, when this aid is measured against you know the Russian war machine.
4: Well, Joyce, first of all, we have to take the aid and put it into the 300-plus that the West has already committed in the way of tanks. And tanks by themselves will not change the scope of this battle. It is the tanks working with the infantry, working with the engineers and all the other vehicles that the Americans that actually gave uh, Ukraine about a month ago. That capability represents something that Ukrainians do not have, And it should give Ukraine the ability to change the stalemate of this war. And that is the race right now is who can actually launch this capability faster. Ukraine can do it before the Russians try to counter
5: it or
4: will the ukrainians be able to go and actually break but this is a complex problem that's not just about tanks it's about how do you put all the tanks the air defense the missiles the helicopters all together working together to actually break through that line to actually make a change in the battlefield it's not about equipment it's about how to put it all together and that's complicated stuff and You know, the Ukrainians, are good, but we haven't talked about, can they put it all together and use it? The Russians haven't, so can the Ukrainians? That's the question.
0: Mr. Browder, I I want to go back to the sanctions, because they hurt the individuals that they target, but they also hurt the population of Russia, the economy, the flow of goods and services. You know, Russia's propaganda machine, is it still able to keep the public's support for this war?
3: I, I unfortunately, I think the answer is yes I think that that um, Putin has very very effectively stirred up a, a sort of uh, pandora 's box of nationalism uh, of of really sort of angry people um angry at, at foreign invaders, angry at nato angry at ukraine. And, um, and his, his support is, is very genuine. And the one thing, if, if the purpose of sanctions were to, to turn the Russian people against him, then they would have completely failed, because that hasn't happened. But the purpose of sanctions is not to do that. The purpose of sanctions is to deplete his resources. And, and it's done sort of half the job. But as I mentioned before, there's still a lot more of the job to do.
0: Yeah, and you know, the ambassador to Canada, Oleg Stepanov, tweeted today, and he seems to agree with you Canadian and Western sanctions against Russian citizens, state structures, or businesses are meaningless. they will never worked against Russia. They can't influence our sovereign foreign policy or domestic affairs. Uh, I want to ask both of you, because, you know, this is the one year anniversary of this war. Uh, uh, first, you, David Fraser, um, you know, the president of the United States was in Kyiv. He was asked by the president of of Ukraine for f16 fire jets he he did not send them is that is you know you said it was very complex but would fighter jets then turn this around for the for for the the ukrainians
4: in a word I don't think so I mean you know every month we talk about a new weapon system first we started talking about rockets and then air defense and then it was about artillery then it was about tanks and now it's about fighters uh ukraine needs everything but at the same token if we thought that tanks and the equipment that's going in today was complicated fighters is a quantum about above that it takes years to train a fighter pilot in any western nation and to have them flying in an in a area a combat zone with some of the best air defense systems firing back at them being russian they're going to fly out of the sky and it's not just about airplanes it's about how do they all work together what the ukrainians need is just all the army stuff the stuff that's on the ground that they have now a lot more of it to keep firing at the russians and then Putting all that together should give them the capability to actually break the stalemate. But this is a race to see who can launch first and a race to who can sustain that offensive capability. Uh, Whoever does that first will have a better chance of actually breaking this and being in a position where we can start to negotiate a diplomatic solution to this problem.
0: Well, that... um... That kind of says it all. Retired Major General David Fraser and Bill Browder, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. Have yourselves a great weekend.
4: Thank you. you.
0: And our Friday strategy session is standing by, but first the political stories you need to know. The list is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to Power Play. This is the list what 's happening today in politics
6: This is a step in the right direction, so we 're accepting the funds uh, from from the federal government and uh, so uh, we in Manitoba have signed on um, with uh, the federal government so The next steps now, Bart, are that we are going to enter into negotiations with respect to our own bilateral agreement. But we agree today in the principle of of the uh, parameters that the federal government has put forward.
0: Manitoba has agreed in principle to the new federal health funding framework and will now begin bilateral negotiations with the government. Ottawa is in the process of negotiations individually with every province and territory after reaching a $46 billion deal with premiers earlier this month. Manitoba's deal gives the province a $6.7 billion boost in funding over two years and $72 million in an immediate one-time top-up for urgent needs. Ontario and the four Atlantic provinces also signed agreements yesterday. And new data from Canada's budget watchdog shows the government is set to spend $21.4 billion on professional and special services, which includes consultants for 2022-2023. Since the 2017-2018 fiscal year, that consulting budget has ballooned by a third. And Canada is boosting humanitarian assistance to earthquake-ravaged Turkey and Syria following an urgent appeal by the United Nations this week. The UN called on members to pool together an immediate $400 million and today Canada announcing $20 million in support. The government is also still matching donations up to $10 million to Canada's humanitarian coalition which pools the resources of top international aid charities. And today, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser announcing Canada is, quote, giving priority to affected individuals for temporary permanent residency and refugee applications. And coming up, Canada's support for Ukraine. In an era of inflation and fiscal restraint, can Canada sustain its support of Ukraine? Our Friday panel of strategists will weigh in next. Keep watching Power Play.
4: Putin is dangerous, he is cowardly, and he is weak. His brazen disregard for human life, his irresponsible rhetoric, and his willingness to inflict terrible violence on innocent people may seem to have no limits. But what is truly without limits is the courage and resolve of those who fight every day for their freedom.
0: Welcome back. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has had global repercussions. The war has contributed to inflation by driving up commodity prices, including energy and agricultural goods, as well as created more disruptions to already disrupted global supply chains. The Canadian government has already spent over $1 billion in military aid for Ukraine. So in this era of fiscal restraint by the federal government, does Canada have much left in the bank to sustain its support of Ukraine much longer? Let's take this to our panel of strategists. Caroline Varayan is an associate vice president with Summa Strategies. She is the former chief of staff to Liberal Minister Jim Carr. Larissa Waller from GT & Company. She previously served as the head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. And Anne McGrath is the NDP National Director. Hello, happy Friday. Good to have you all on the panel. Larissa, I'm going to start with you because you're far away. So... You know, Canada has contributed already a billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine. The Prime Minister was asked earlier this week whether he would sustain sustain this level of aid. He said, yes, as long as it is needed.
7: Um, is Is this sustainable and should it be more? So I think that we need to reframe that question. It's not just aid for Ukraine, it's aid for the world. This is a world fight. Ukraine is on the forefront, Ukrainian soldiers are paying with their blood and their bones and their limbs, but let's not be uh, foolish here, this is Western democracies, Western values, uh, democratic freedoms versus dictatorship, corruption, and, and really like just awful regimes. And so, you know, is Canada willing to stay in this fight? I certainly hope so. I mean, let's not forget we have a massive undefended border in the Arctic with Russia. Um, So I know it's expensive. I know a lot of people are sort of getting Ukraine fatigue, but this is a global fight. It's not Ukraine's fault that Russia attacked it, and we all have an interest in the outcome.
0: Carleen, we're we're a G7 country. Those are the biggest economies of the world. You know, is Canada in a position, and should Canada do more, first for Ukraine, and then we'll get into Mm -hmm. other uh, of Canada's... duties to NATO and to NORAD.
6: The new words that we saw from the Prime Minister today that I think were really the key words for us to pay attention to were, for as long as it takes. Um, I, I, su- I suspect that was deliberate. I, I suspect Ukraine has been asking its Western allies to send signals of exactly that nature because it's important for them in terms of uh, what what their Russian aggressors are seeing and hearing. Um, and it's also not a commitment that Prime Minister Trudeau can make lightly without a great deal of consideration. You have to be prepared for the words as long as it takes to mean Anything, um, And I think the fact that Canada was able to make that commitment so firmly today is a signal not just of the current government's intentions around spending and investment, but, but probably also the fact that it's backed up by near universal support um, from Can- the Canadian population um, for Canada's support for Ukraine. So,
0: you know, I know I want to broaden it to military spending. Canada is a member of NATO. Um, and the, the, they're engaged to spend 2% of their GDP on defense, which Canada is not doing. Is this the time for Canada to do it, or is it just too much?
5: I don't see those two things as being particularly linked, to be honest. Uh, I think that the the two percent uh, goal for NATO is, is is separate for me from the uh, from, from the the war in Ukraine. We're one year in now to what is really an unspeakable, horrible tragedy. Um, it is. Uh, I agree with uh, Larissa that this is not that this is not can uh, this is not Russia versus Ukraine. This is Russia versus the rest of the world in many ways, and uh, this this. This is. Uh, this has implications for all of Europe, and it has implications for North America, for sure, and the rest of the world. So I think that there is actually no choice but to offer the most support that we possibly can to make sure that Ukraine is able to uh, is able to sustain itself and to win this war. This. Unbelievable, you know, aggressive, illegal, atrocious war. So, um, I, I think that he, that that the Prime Minister Trudeau's words, as long as it takes, are the right. It's the right signal to send because a lot of people didn't think it was going to go a, a full year. They yeah. thought that Ukraine was going to uh, collapse within probably days or weeks, and they've gone a year. They have been so resourceful, so forceful, so strong, so inspirational in many ways. We have to be there with Ukrainians uh, as, as they win this over the next, hopefully over the next year.
0: Uh, but Larissa, this is a time to talk about military spending. Uh, there's also the issues, as you said, of the Arctic sovereignty, NORAD and the Chinese balloon surveillance. Do you expect Canada's defense spending will be boosted in the upcoming budget?
7: I think that Canadians are probably more aware that we are not as safe and as insulated as we maybe thought we were. I think maybe Canadians are viewing military spending and military investment a bit like going to the dentist. You know, if you have a little cavity, you should fill it now, right? You should make the investments now. If not, it's going to be a root canal. And, you know, I say that sort of facetiously, but not really, right? You know, China with, that, with the spy balloon, um, again, we have an undefended border with Russia. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of brought the fight home. Um, A lot of Canadians, myself included, have family and friends in Ukraine. A lot of businesses in Canada have offices in Ukraine. Ukraine isn't some faraway country that it's easy to think that could never happen to us. These people in Ukraine are just like you and me. They're fighting, giving up their lives. And if we don't make the investments in our military right now, we're not going to be able to defend ourselves or defend our allies should we ever need to.
0: So I want to put that to you because I think it's an interesting analogy, uh, the going to the dentist first—it's a cavity, then it's a root canal. Is this is it, it sounds like a good analogy. Is this not the time for us to have a national conversation on? You know, should we be a little bit more military because, you know, I asked the chief of the defense staff a few months ago, could we do today what we did in Afghanistan? And the answer was no, we are not even prepared for that anymore. So it's gone downhill. Mm -hmm. But today the conversation, the invasion forces us to have this conversation. So should it be uh, going to the dentist for a cavity or are we going to wait for the root canal?
6: Well, I think it's important to uh, take a look at how Canadians view defense spending in their country. Historically, we've seen that the average Canadian's appetite for defense spending in their federal budget is lower than what you would see in some of our partner nations, let's say the United States or the United Kingdom, for example. Um, and, And that's something that has been the case for quite some time. But what's remarkable is how quickly that attitude shifts when you're speaking about Ukraine. We have seen overwhelming support among Canadians for the last year for all of the investments that the Canadian government has made uh, in supporting Ukraine and that's not just the billion dollars in military aid, it's the other four billion that have gone into immigration support for refugees, the loans to the IMF bank, the humanitarian aid, so on and so forth. Um, and. The question of, of the NATO commitment, and that's that that principle that NATO member countries should be s- spending 2% of their GDP on defense, is a very interesting one, because if you think about you know, why NATO was established, it was to prevent another big war in Europe. And what a lot of people don't realize is that it actually has been Canada that has had that outsized influence in Ukraine training their forces for years leading up to this war, well before Russia invaded. Um, and so in a way, Canada is doing exactly what NATO, you know, and its, its core objective is there to do, which is to help that war, help prevent that war from spreading to other countries and, and keeping Russia at bay. And I, I don't have
0: a lot of time, but I want to ask you, do you think that Canadian Canadians would support, they support as, uh, you know, a clearly the aid and and the billions of dollars to Ukraine, would Canadians support a bigger defense budget?
5: I don't think that what's happening in Ukraine is an excuse for unfettered military expansion. I think the Canadians would not be there for that. And that's why I see these as separate things. I think that there is a particular uh, uh, response to what's happening in Ukraine because people do recognize how important it is for all of us. And I think that is separate from this idea that the military should be able to expand. Um, I think what we should be doing is whatever is necessary and that we can do, that where we have expertise, where we have uh, the resources, all of those kinds of things. But it is not an excuse for, uh, for military expansionism. I don't think that would be supported by Canadians and it would be the wrong thing to do. Well, it's interesting that we're actually having a conversation about it. Two years ago, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't
0: be having this conversation two years no, the ago. The world has changed yeah. in the last year. Has it ever? Uh, Caroline Avaryan, Larissa Waller, and McGrath. It's unfortunately all the time we have, but thanks for taking the time and spending it with us. Have a great weekend. And the Press Gallery is here, where their plays and misplays of the week stay right here with Power Play. Welcome back. Roxham Road becomes the center of a political showdown, but is it really as easy as shutting it down? And a few MPs in hot water for meeting with a controversial far right German politician. So, what were the political wins and losses of the week? Let's bring in the press gallery now. Joining me now are Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacourt, a must-read, and freelance journalist and investigative reporter Justin Ling, also must-read. Uh, nice to see you both. Happy Friday. Uh, Susan, you have a play. I and did. wait, but before we hear <laughs> your play, let's uh, listen to this.
8: Conservatives are calling for the Prime Minister to implement a plan to close the Roxham Road crossing within 30 days from now.
9: So you're giving the opposition leader a play, explain. I am giving him a play with a huge asterisk or footnote attached, because I think it definitely was a play. It was simple, it was clear, and he started a conversation rolling all week about what is going on at Roxham Road and for that he deserves some credit. And that's the point where people are coming in from the United States, 40,000 last year. Irregular migration and I thought the way he did it was a bit artful too, saying it's not their fault, it's not the immigrants fault and we know that Mr. Polyev is at at pains to show that the Conservatives are not against immigration. However, uh, his solution is simplistic. It's probably impossible. And um, invited the prime minister to, I think, say what was a, a, a fun line of the week, which is, yeah, we could build a wall there, um, reminding people that there's another guy who wanted to build walls, too. And how did that work? But out? he just said, close it. He didn't say build a he wall. He said build a wall. Uh, no, Trudeau, I, Pierre Polyev said. Uh, close uh, it. Yes. But Trudeau enjoyed the idea of building a wall there. Yeah, that... that. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think the stage is now set for some interesting conversations when Biden gets here. Um, Pierre Polyev gets a play for getting that ball rolling. If he does ever become prime minister, though, I suspect this will be very hard for him, a promise that we, he'll find very hard to keep.
0: Justin Ling, you know, the prime minister slammed him, as as Susan says, because his solution is simplistic. Is it, is it that complicated? You know, they always tell us, I mean, it's not that simple. Is, is, is there no solution?
8: There's no easy solution, and it is really, really complicated. I mean, the reason they're, they're crossing at Roxham Road is because it's basically the easiest place to get across, and there's kind of the infrastructure there already. If they don't cross at Rocks and Road, the question is, where do they cross? We've seen people literally freeze to death. Entire families freeze to death in the cold trying to cross at other irregular crossings. So, so, so the idea that if you close, close one entry, the problem goes away is unbelievably naive. That being said, yeah. <laughs> the situation is untenable, right? I mean, Pierre Poliev is right. I would I would give him a play here, too. I mean, the idea that we are, are just sort of blithely, you know, accepting this is a situation that we're sort of stuck in is intolerable to a lot of people. Um, there's folks in Quebec, there's folks, folks across the country, whether you're anti-immigration, whether you care deeply about the plight of refugees and asylum seekers and economic immigrants, you're looking at this and you have to accept that this just can't go on this way. This isn't good for anybody. There needs to be a negotiated solution here. It's not as easy as closing it, but I think good on Pierre Polyev for for turning up the temperature and, and pushing the Prime Minister to do something about it, because it will be a negotiated solution uh, and it's one that has to take into account the well-being of the people trying to cross.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't look like the Americans are too, uh, you know, in a hurry to negotiate this because it's kind of to their advantage. Uh, which is an interesting point, but I agree good for Mr Poilier for bringing it up and making it into a national conversation now. Justin, I know you have a misplay uh, to give out, but before we get into it, I want to give some background on a German politician. So Christine Anderson is a member of the European Parliament for the Alternative for Germany party. Her party was called a right-wing extremist endeavor against the free democratic basic order by the German Federal Office for the protection of the Constitution. Uh, she called Justin Trudeau a disgrace when he addressed the European Parliament last year. Um, Justin, let's... Here, now, your misplay.
8: Yeah, my misplay is for the Conservative Party, for three Conservative MPs who decided to go have a lunch with her in Oshawa ahead of a speaking arrangement she gave uh, out there put on by a whole bunch of pro-freedom convoy types. Uh, Colin Kerry, you can see them there, Leslie Lewis, Colin Kerry, Dean Allison, uh, but also for Pierre Polyev, who put out an unbelievably insulting statement that tests all of our intelligence uh, that basically says these three MPs had no idea who she was. They were complete idiots who wanted off the street and started having lunch with this random woman who they've never seen or heard of before. It is unbelievably insulting to all of our intelligence. Uh, Colin Carey, uh, Member of Parliament for Ontario, actually stood in the House of Commons last March and celebrated uh, Christine Anderson and her bizarre statements attacking the Prime Minister. Um, We have heard from these three MPs time and time again uh, attacking the, the science around vaccines, attacking public health, Health officials attacking uh, our entire response to this pandemic uh, and insinuating that we've all been harmed by the vaccines and these public health measures. Um, it, it, they met with her because they agree with her. Because they they sing, they sing from the same hymn book. And for them to turn around now and go, oh, we had no idea who she was, we were tricked into meeting with her, is just unbelievably insulting to all of us. They should stand up, they should own what they actually believe in, and they should stop trying to uh, to trick us into thinking that uh, there's some uh, naive morons who, who wandering off the street. unbelievably stupid. Right. Yeah.
0: Um, Susan, the last word to you. Do you believe they didn't know who they were meeting with? No,
9: not at all. Um, and uh, I... I, I to commend everybody to look at the Prime Minister's response to this, it showed that why this Prime Minister believes he wants to stick around. He was uh, fired up about this today. Also it undoes all the undoing that Pierre Polyev has been trying to do, like unravel the connection to the convoy. And with one photograph, we're all reminded that, um, that these guys were flirting with some strange thoughts.
0: And, I mean, I think that the, the, the statement by their leader was, yeah, disingenuous, um, you know, that he didn't know, they didn't know who they were meeting with, so... Maybe they should know. M- maybe they should have <laughs> known, and uh, they probably did, or who knows? Uh, but that's an interesting and a very puzzling story. Uh, so this, unfortunately, all the time we have left, Susan Delacourt, Justin Ling, uh, thanks for your plays and for your misplays this week, and that's your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be back right here on Monday, same time, same place. And now we're going to hand you over to our colleague, Angie Seth, in Toronto.